I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Israel is headed to elections. On April 9th, Israelis will be called to the ballot box to support their political party. Bibi, the incumbent prime minister, is once again asking for Israelis' trust and support. With tensions rising along the border with Syria and Gaza, and internal pressure building up between the left and the right here at home, this election is bound to be dramatic. In an attempt to understand the upcoming elections, the players, and the current state of affairs, we're joined by Deputy Minister Michael Oren, who by now, we're happy to say, is a regular on the podcast. Dr. Michael Oren is a Deputy Minister in the Prime Minister's Office, member of Knesset and the Kulanu Party, and he served as the Israeli Ambassador to the United States in the years 2009 to 2013. He is also a visiting professor at Harvard, Yale, and Georgetown. He is the author of several books, both fiction and nonfiction, which we've discussed here on the podcast. We are honored to be joined by Deputy Minister Oren to discuss what's in store for Israel and for him. Thank you so much for joining us. If we could give knighthood, yeah. we would. <laughs> I, I, you know, smack me with a sword. Why not? I've been in Israeli politics. I can probably... put up with that too how do you okay. sum up the last four years as first of all learning experience you know it's very it, it's, it's remarkable to get to my advanced age and uh, and basically go through elementary school again and it's funny the first day when you go into Knesset they say you, you, you know they say welcome to first grade and and it's and it's true um, you learn you learn about politics you learn about uh, these really you Uh, democratic process the electoral policies you learn about the ways of the world and um, and you serve to me the last four years have been um, just one outstanding privilege that's not to say it hasn't been easy frustrating sometimes boring you know try sitting around through a filibuster that goes to four o'clock in the morning and you know pushing the same button over again hundreds of times you know negged 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 no 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 as the opposition filibusters any piece of legislation um, it's not exactly riveting but uh, if I had to do it all over again I'd do it all over again exactly the same way and uh, uh, I'm, I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity what did you learn about the system? Our democracy and about yourself during this period um, okay it's a good question I learned that uh, Israeli democracy is probably the most impressive uh, accomplishment or among the most impressive accomplishments of this country How so? that uh, you can take people Jews from 70 different nations um, very few come from a democratic background uh, if you come from an English-speaking country okay you have 800 years of democratic history Uh, thought and philosophy behind you but most of the people in this country who moved here uh, or their parents or grandparents moved here they came from Eastern Europe they came from Arab countries they came from North Africa not countries known for their democratic traditions um, and had to invent democracy from scratch very very difficult mm-hmm. uh, in addition to the the Arab population here 21 of the population they had no exposure to democracy either the fact that we can that Israel today is one of the five or six countries in the world that has never known a second of non-democratic governance we're the only country on the list that has never known a nanosecond of peace that we are situated in quite literally the most inhospitable environment on the planet that you know from the point where I'm talking to you in Tel Aviv we're about a two-hour drive from the Syrian Civil War about an eight-hour drive from Baghdad an eight-hour drive from Cairo an hour and a half drive from Gaza I mean think about this the fact that Israel has maintained this democracy and it's a 
a flourishing, flagrant democracy, in certain ways much more democratic than other countries I know, um, is just an outstanding, if not miraculous, accomplishment for this country. Think about it. At the same time, uh, the Israeli democracy, like all democracies in the world, is flawed. You know, I suppose that Churchill said it's a terrible system unless you think of the alternative. Um, and the system is flawed. One of the fundamental flaws I see in the Israeli system, and this is coming from an American background, is that the Knesset, uh, unlike the Congress, is not a co-equal branch of government. And that the ability of the Knesset to impact uh, the way the country is run is, is much more limited than in other countries because um, ever since the time of Shimon Peres, uh, we have what's known as the coalition agreement where the parties join the coalition and they agree up front uh, what pieces of legislation they will support and what pieces of legislation they'll oppose. And that basically transforms members of Knesset into fingers. We're told how to, which, when we, how to, when vote. We, how to vote. And the, the whips Like will, soldiers. It's you like, have to obey. You have to obey. And you have what's called two layers of discipline. You have party discipline, how your party tells you to vote. But you also have coalition discipline. And if you vote against your party and vote against your coalition, you'll be punished. I could be, and I have been suspended from Knesset uh, positions uh, for several days because I voted against the coalition or refused what, to participate in it. For example, what? Um, I was opposed to the what was known as the NGO law. The NGO laws that said that uh, that state contributions to NGOs in this country had to be uh, publicized. Um, there were uh, some recommendations that they also be taxed at a certain rate. Now, I had no problem with that. What I had a problem was that was the designation was limiting the legislation only to state contributions because state contributions are only made to left-wing NGOs, whereas right-wing NGOs get private donations. And if the if the principle is one of, of transparency, of foreign donations to NGOs, then it should apply to state donations as well as individual donations. So I, I opposed that bill. And um, you were and punished. I was punished. I was suspended from my uh, Knesset um, committee chairmanship uh, so, for a period. So that you understand that. Now, you also learn in politics that you can't fall on every sword, and you've got to choose your swords. Mm-hmm. So people have asked me repeatedly, why did you vote for the nation-state law? And I didn't think it was a perfect law. I thought it was a necessary law. I, um, Years ago, now 10 years ago, I participated in the last round of negotiations with the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. It lasted six, six hours. And uh, I learned probably more in those six hours than I learned in six years of university. But one of the things I learned was that when the Palestinians said to me, you, Israelis, want us to recognize you as the Jewish state, but you yourselves don't have a law that calls you the Jewish state. And I came away with the conclusion that we need a law that says that Israel's the Jewish state. So the idea of the nationality law was, for me, a very good idea. Not to mention that the Palestinian Authority recognized uh, Israel, right? And but not as is- a Jewish state. Yes, but if Israel recognizes itself as a Jewish state, then by that, some said... That may be a little bit arcane. Okay. Okay. I think that they have to recognize a Jewish state uh, as we recognize the Palestinians people in the Palestinian state, uh, that's the only basis for an actual permanent legitimate peace. There will not be a legitimate peace if they don't recognize us. That I know from having participated in the Oslo process, going back you know, to 1990s when I was an advisor in the Rabin government. Rabin recognized the Palestinian people, but Arafat recognized Israel, right. which was a, a, a gross uh, asymmetry for which we paid dearly, um, and we continue to pay. Big mistake. And I thought so back in 1993. 
But anyway, we're skipping ahead uh, or back. Um, so you can... And that I think that the state nation law should have contained four or five words in its preamble saying that Israel is also the democratic state that guarantees equal rights to all of its citizens. It wouldn't have detracted in any way from the power of the law. It would not have been a derogation. Uh, we didn't do it. Why? Uh, and, mm? Why? We didn't because there's only so much you can fight against. So I fought against several actively fought against several articles in the law. One of them would have given uh, Jewish communities uh, in Israel the power to um, expel uh, Arab residents mm-hmm. or deny them permission to, to, uh, to live in those communities, and I got rid of that. I had to fight against certain um, uh, articles that related to Israel's connection to diaspora Jewry, uh, which were highly problematic, and I was able to succeed you know, to a certain degree in changing the text of the national law, the nationality law, but that you realize in politics. So I had, in order for my, in order to, I traded my ability to impact the text for my vote in favor of the text when it was finished. Because uh, if I had decided not to vote for it, I wouldn't have been able to change it in any way. Mm-hmm. So just, that that's politics. That's the reality of politics. I'm trying to understand exactly the the difference between that you pointed out that you pointed to beforehand between the Israeli system and the American system. I know we're going a little bit back, but I I just want to kind of uh, understand that point a little more. So here, you you're dis- in in the United States system, you can kind of vote on both sides of the aisle independently do you in theory sure and there there are people who do cross the aisle less so because of the political polarization going on in america where you know the two sides the republican democratic side have, the past, have, have, have become ossified have become entrenched in their positions but much more in the past and, and the congress is a co-equal branch of government it has the same powers and strength as the executive branch which is the white mm. house and as the judicial branch which is the supreme court um we don't have that balance um, and one of the big um, dangers to the future of Israeli democracy uh, stems from the absence of a balance, of the checks and balances, particularly between the relationship between the legislature and the judiciary. Um, and here was a source of frustration for me. What Who is holds occur- the power in that relationship? Well, what's happened is um, if you look at the, the history of uh, the Knesset's relationship with uh, the Supreme Court, over the last, say, 30, 40 years, you see back in the 40s, the 60s, the 70s, there was almost no disagreements, almost no disagreement. There were almost no disagreements between the, the Supreme Court and the Knesset. Pretty much agreed on everything. And then starting in the 90s, you start getting situations where the Knesset passes a law and the Supreme Court says, no, it's illegal, it's unconstitutional, even though we don't have a constitution, it's undemocratic. And sending the law back. And yet at first you'd had one or two of these every year, and now we're up to a time in, in this century where this is happening on multiple occasions every year. Now, why is this happening? It's happening because of two reasons. Um, the first is the way Supreme Court judges are chosen. Whereas in the United States, if you're an American citizen, you have not one but two opportunities to influence the composition of the Supreme Court. You vote for president, and you vote for the Senate. President nominates, the Senate confirms. In this country, you as citizens have no ability to impact the composition of the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court that determines so much of your life. Now, you talk about something that's not democratic. Here, it's only the committee, the Justice Committee. We'll talk about in a second what happens, but here, it's interesting that in an American election, how a candidate, certainly a presidential candidate, feels about the composition of the Supreme Court is a major consideration for American voters. I know from my own family, they vote a certain way because they're concerned about what the Supreme Court's going to look like. 
in this country, nobody even asks. It's right. not a. It's never an election. Not shooter. because we don't want to influence it, but we don't have the ability. We just yeah. yeah. We don't because the system was designed that ways way back when, th- this way went back when, and now it's very hard to change that. Well, in a way, it's kind of an elitist approach because the 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 founding fathers and mothers of this country decided that the judiciary should not be influenced by the by the by the amcha, by the right. hoi polloi. Uh, my Mizrahi Jews who came from Morocco. Whatever. Well, you can go there. I'm not. But just you know, they, they had to be. It had to be above it. It had to be above that fray. That's what. And that was the mentality in the 50s. So, I meant, so the majority more. voice in determining judges goes to jurists, whether members of the Supreme Court or uh, members of the uh, of the bar association. And even though the current um, justice minister uh, Ayelet Shaket Shaket has has been proven successful in getting judges who are close to her worldview appro- appro- uh, 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 approved, there's no guarantee that that will continue in the future. So what you have in our Supreme Court is that in terms of its worldview, the Supreme Court has pretty much treaded water. Pretty much tread water. It's moved, it stayed pretty much where it was uh, in the late 80s and early 90s. But what else has happened is really public opinion has moved. Moved significantly to the right and the Knesset, as the body which most closely reflects shifts in Israeli public opinion, has moved with it. So what you have is an opening chasm, ideological, um, conceptual, between the Supreme Court and the Knesset. And that is where you have this conflict all the time. And by the way, there's, what happens eventually is uh, people in the Knesset will say, you know, who are you in the Supreme Court? Who who elected you? They're already oh. saying. They're saying it now. That leads yeah. to... So they're going to pass legislation that's going to uh, end run the Knesset at uh, the Supreme Court. It's called, you know, the law to basically bypass uh, the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And understand that judicial review is the pillar of every democratic system in the world, and, and it's being eroded here. It's that's a rift here. between the people... And the ju- judiciary system, mm. basically, right? Well, there's another problem. That is the the activism of the Supreme Court. Yeah. As established by Supreme Court President uh, Aaron Barak back in the 90s, where he said everything is adjudicable. Everything can be judged by the Supreme Court. So you have a Supreme Court which is uh, detached, alienated from Israeli public opinion, and believes it can judge, pass judgment on everything. It's like kind of anti-democratic. Whether, whether, it's 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 extremely problematic and uh, and dangerous, dangerous for our democracy. So you have a situation where um, there's tremendous pressure on the Israeli government not to give back the bodies of Hamas terrorists who've been killed. Certainly not until Hamas gives back the bodies of our soldiers, which they're holding. Mm-hmm. And the Supreme Court rules that the Israeli government can't withhold the bodies from Hamas. Now go explain that to the Israeli public. And you know, on the base of some obscure reading of lacuna in the law. Mm-hmm. Now, that, that's not a sustainable system or situation for our democracy. It's going to collapse. And you have a, a, um, a legislative effort underway called in Hebrew, Piskatit Gabrut. I don't know how you're going to define that. The overcoming clause, which will say with a certain number of votes in Knesset, a majority, the Knesset can override a decision of Israeli Supreme Court. The only that problem is the beginning of the end of judicial review. And that's also 
problematic for yeah. democracy. Meaning giving either side too much power is it's, really it's problematic. It's the end of checks and balances. So I'm saying here, I've learned about the flaws in Israel's demo- in yeah. democracy um, that we've done as well as we have uh, with this type of flaws is remarkable. Yeah. And what did you learn about yourself in these four years? Um, I learned that I have a lot to learn. Um, I learned that um, I could probably use a, an extra dose or two of cruelty <laughs> and ruthlessness. Isn't it okay. a little bit too late for that? No, no, I can learn. Ruthlessness <laughs> is something you can pick up. Okay. Um, I've learned. You know, I think that um, sociopathic behavior is definitely, definitely a, a, a bonus in politics. <laughs> and it makes perfect sense because in politics you don't sleep like a normal human being you don't eat like a human being you get up in the morning you read the paper and they've they've you know torn you a new colon in the newspaper and they're attacking your kids and, and a normal human being couldn't function like that just couldn't you're also uh, <laughs> I wonder if there's something to be said for the fact that you're making decisions that impact a, that have a lot of influence when and, and don't allow you to kind of have the the uh, the care for the individual that you might that you know a non-sociopathic well if you're in a situation like the prime minister or the defense minister you have to spend send you know hundreds maybe thousands of young israelis to battle knowing that some are not going to come home yeah and that you'll be destroying the lives of hundreds maybe thousands of people i mean you have to steal yourself in some way you just have to Mm -hmm. and again a normal human being may not be able to sustain That type of pressure, that horror, not the pressure. So decent I people have, don't have room in Israeli politics? It, it's not just Israeli politics. I think that since um, human beings have been in caves, politics has been tough and often dirty and brutal business. just always has. The, the, the struggle over the control of other people's lives, power. It's dirty business. In, in, in the medieval courts, if you uh, ran afoul of the king, you got your head cut off. Um, And today they, they cut off your reputation in the internet. I don't know which is worse. <laughs> <laughs> Probably but, the former. <laughs> but it's, 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 I don't know. It's, all, it's, it's just brutal business. And it, yeah. it, as an historian, it's interesting. Who, who, you know, I've studied medieval courts. Uh, I'm, I'm always amazed at just how little, little has changed. Really little has changed. And uh, what has been uplifting for me, and I mean profoundly uplifting, And what, what the Israeli public is insufficiently aware of is the, is the personal um, service that members of Knesset provide to Israelis, to citizens. I mean, every day, I would say most of my day, was occupied with handling problems. Uh, my particular constituency were, um, were immigrants, Olim Khadashim, lone soldiers. Um, I had a particular interest in, in hospitals. I had a particular interest in, in the Druze and Arab communities. Fall calls, people coming in, um, asking my advice how to fight BDS, how to represent Israel on campuses, and you give time and time, and my phone was always open. It didn't matter, you know, who the individual was, I was going to, to help them. I was at a, a conference for lone soldiers a while ago, and a young man comes up to me and he said, you saved my life. I said, I don't remember who you are, so <laughs> save your life. It turned I got him out of a certain unit where where he was having a lot of problems and uh, got him into a better unit. But that, that is something you, you do on a daily basis. And I think most members of Knesset do that. I, I'd like to think that I was particularly accessible. So to me, this was, uh, that's where the privilege comes in. The privilege was really serving the Israeli public, okay? not pressing the, the no or yes button at 2 o'clock in the morning you know, relentlessly, but serving the Israeli public. So 
Tell us. I think, you know, a lot of people have been wondering in the past uh, few weeks whether or not you're running again. Not. Uh, and you're not, as you told us before. Is right. that your final answer? Yeah, pretty much a final answer, unless, you know, something, a you know, deus ex machina comes floating down. I don't think so. My, my own party sort of disintegrated. Yeah. Uh, it didn't deliver on the promises it made. It wasn't something that I was involved in. I was, uh, it, it was an economic and social party that ought, sought to bring down uh, the price of living, particularly the housing prices, and didn't entirely succeed. Uh, I was there to deal with diplomacy. I dealt with diplomacy. So, but as a member of the party, I, you know, I suffered the consequences. Um, so the party doesn't look like it's going to make it into the next Knesset. It might, I, you know, um, but it doesn't have any interest in foreign policy now, and that's where I, that's where I come in. Uh, the Likud, um, I might have stood for uh, for the primaries in the Likud, but the there are currently about twenty candidates for every position in the Likud. And uh, my ability maybe to get into Knesset in a position that actually would have influenced foreign policy and influenced decision-making on a national level was, was, was limited almost to naught. Okay? Mm-hmm. Um, very, very narrow. Other parties, um, I would Lapid. have a hard time with, with, a, with, a, with a ideological fit. Lapid? Lapid is, um, fashions himself as a foreign minister. He doesn't need one. So you're... <laughs> You're not. You're not saying you're done with politics. It's not in the least. Hiatus, I, I, as, far as, as far as I'm concerned, my political career has just begun, and I'm already aiming for the next Knesset after this one, and I will build a, a base that will be wider, mm-hmm. um, and I think uh, more effective. So it's like a marathon for you. It, it, they always say the first thing they always say, along with "Welcome to First Grade," they always say that that politics is not a sprint; it's a marathon. And um, I would have preferred to start this race when I was your age. I started it at a more advanced age. And that, you know, influences you as well. Um, I mean, for example, I, I probably could have found a place in Knesset that would have made me a backbencher. And um, I asked myself at, at this age, and is this the best way I can contribute to Israeli society? Um, you know, dealing with, say, pension reform. It's important that people deal with pension reform, but it's not a field that I understand or, or speaks to me. But I can write books that can influence many, many thousands of people. I can appear on TV. I can speak my mind. Um, things I couldn't do um, when I was in politics. I think I mentioned last time I was on your podcast that um, one of the most difficult things in politics was that I, as a member of the government, I can't publish books. I can mm. write them, but I can't publish them. Now, I write every morning. So you have a pile I get, of books. I, got, I get up every morning. I write, you know, at 6, 6.30 in the morning. I'm there you know, typing away before I start my day. I started this morning at 6.30 this morning writing. And yes, I have written some books, and now wow. I'll be able to publish them. But hopefully they'll, be, they'll influence some people. That's cool. So I, I don't know if we're going to get an answer out of you on this one. But what, I want to talk about a bit what, what, what's coming up and what we have in store for us. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see any of these... Uh, investigations that are underway having any kind of influence on the election, whether or not they're going to come to fruition or or uh, de- by decisions made by the attorney general? Do you think they're going to play any kind of part in the upcoming election? I think they'll play a part. The question is whether they'll play a decisive part. Um, and they can play both ways. The, the, uh, the issuance of um, or the publication of uh, indictments against the prime minister could help rally his base. And that base has already rallied against the judicial establishment they see as an attempt to topple the prime minister. Um, and the, the prime minister himself has, has laid the groundwork for this in, in many of his recent remarks and speeches. Um, my own feeling, and this is just a gut feeling, I'm not, uh, I'm not a prophet, 
is that the prime minister will, if, if, if these indictments are published, the prime minister will fight the indictments in office, which he can do by law, by the way. He's not in any way obligated by law to resign. And that process can take a very long time, a very long time. How do you feel about a prime minister who has to deal with his legal situation and be prime minister at the same time? I think that we, uh, I think it's, it's unfortunate. I don't think, um, let me rephrase this. The task, the job of the prime minister of Israel is quite simply the hardest job on the planet Earth. I don't know, I don't know a job that's harder. If you're president of the United States, you get to take two two weeks vacations playing golf on Martha's Vineyard or in Maine somewhere, right? You need McDonald's. If you, if the Prime Minister of Israel would ever take a two-day vacation, there'd be riots in the street. <laughs> he doesn't sleep. He doesn't get weekends. He's under constant, constant barrages, both, you know, journalistic and military. Um, constant. And uh, that the Prime Minister of Israel has to take time off for legal issues is a problem for this country. And I think that we have to think seriously about emulating some of the American provisions that said that they, you can't indict a sitting uh, president or the French uh, model. You can't indict a, a sitting French president. You can indict him after he gets out, um, but it, it just becomes too disruptive. And um, you can't say, you know, whether the prime minister is innocent or, or, or guilty, and I certainly believe in his right to prove that, the right to prove that he's innocent before, you know, uh, you can't, possibly imagine him getting a fair trial because he's been tried you know so openly flagrantly every damn day in the press um and but isn't he's that been convicted already by isn't it. that suggesting though that there's some kind of like influence on the judicial on the judiciary that like public opinion sways them is that is that a is that a fact well we know that there doesn't unfortunately we know that from the uh from that what i talked about earlier about the growing gap between the knesset and the judiciary um no, but the, even their lives have been, you know, made very, very difficult. The attorney general has had uh, threats made against him, protests outside of his house. Um, I, I don't think that this trial should be conducted in the papers. I don't think it should be conducted in the streets. And if there was to be investigation, there would be an investigation if the prime minister should have been quiet, uh, under the table, without leaks, um, and let the police and the judges do their job. Mm-hmm. So... You leave this government after four years, and um, there are, as we said in our intro, two uh, issues remain unsolved, and this is the Gaza problem and the Ira Iranian front on our northern borders. Yes. So I wonder how you see that. As far as security, there's a lot of other issues. That... Yeah, but <laughs> these are like the two main yeah. things, I think, that also overshadow these elections in a way. I, you know, I wish you were right. Um, I've just come from the Likud convention in a lot where I spoke on a panel. Um, you know, I obviously follow the political news. Uh, in the Likud uh, convention, members, candidates walked in playing drums and with clowns and posters. And, um, and there's a candidate now, uh, Benny Gantz, who's running right behind Bibi, uh, who hasn't espoused any positions at all. Um, you yeah. wouldn't know that this country is facing 130,000 rockets in the hands of Hezbollah. Wouldn't know that uh, Hamas fired 500 rockets at us a couple of weeks ago. I mean, you, you wouldn't know that there are a million Israelis beneath the poverty line. Okay, so we have to talk about the um, the uh, I don't want to say the narrowing of Israeli politics, but it's become highly populist, 
and I think it's a world trend. It's not just here. Um, but we can afford it less than other countries. And the issues in this election should be how we should handle Hamas, how we should handle Hezbollah, how are we going to address the issues of, of poverty and income gaps. In this how country. would you handle Hamas? I would handle Hamas and Hezbollah in a very similar manner, and it's this. Um, we have now in Washington still the uh, administration, which is probably the friendliest we've known since 1948. Um, I don't know how long that administration will be in office after 2020, if it will uh, achieve a second. Or even until uh, 2020. They may be bogged down in other things now going on with Congress. Yeah. Um, but if we are to address the Hezbollah-Iranian threat, and if we are to address the Hamas threat, and they're not separate threats, they're in many, many ways leaked, we're going to need an immense amount of support. We're going to need logistical support. In our last four wars against terrorists, we have run out of ammunition, different types of ammunition. We're going to need ammunition. Obama in 2014, during Protective Edge, held up the supply. As revenge. Yeah. As vital forms of so it's no joke, and this will be a much more complex and uh, and long, long a longer war. Um, we will need, in addition to military support, we will need what I call the uh, legal and um, diplomatic Iron Dome. Who's going to cast the vetoes in the Security Council? Who's going to defend us in the Hague and in the International Criminal Court? Uh, we have to have those understandings up front with this administration. Because I don't know if we're going to get it to the next administration. And we also need an understanding about what is going to happen in Gaza on the day after the IDF kicks out Hamas. Because what's going to happen, if we don't have an understanding, we'll be standing there with the keys to Gaza. And no one's going to take the keys from us. No one's going to take Gaza from us. We're going to be stuck in Gaza. And we can't be there. Because I believe the IDF can kick out Hamas. I don't think it's an overwhelming military challenge. We can do it. We can do it quickly. But we need an understanding with the United States and through the United States with, uh, with leading Arab countries about uh, restoring, rebuilding Gaza and creating a viable environment there for the people of Gaza that they won't always turn to terrorism. That we can only do now, I believe, uh, right now with this administration. And we should be engaging in deep discussions with them about it. You really think that we can... Uh Take out Gaza from uh, take out Hamas from the Gaza Strip. I mean, isn't it going to be? Yes. Wouldn't it be? I mean, without without having a, a complete global outrage because it would entail. That's why we need the understandings. That's oh, why we okay. need the diplomatic and, and legal Iron Dome. Yeah, the Security Council is going to convene out, to condemn us. You can pull out Gaza, uh, the Hamas from Gaza like a tooth, but you can't pull it out from the heart of the Gazanians. Or- But that's okay. why you, that's part right. of the program. So we're always going to be dealing with Islamic extremism, and we're always going to be dealing with Islamic terror. The question is whether you can rebuild Gaza in such a way where the majority of the population will become invested in a better status quo. That's all you can do. Because right now, according to our own Shabak, if elections were held in Gaza, Hamas would win. Because they do have captured, they have captured the hearts. They've taken away the electricity, they've taken away the food, they've taken away the jobs, but they still have the hearts. And uh, for all sorts of interesting reasons. And uh, we have to create a situation where the people of Gaza can, look, can at least be confronted with an alternative, which is much, much better. But that takes forethought, and it takes leadership, and it, talk to, it means that you have to address this issue. You can't just rely on drums and clowns. And Iran, are we going to have to face Iran In, in the battlefield eventually I I think we will because Iran is because confronting Israel destroy attempting to destroy Israel is in the DNA of Iran 
and they're not going to change their DNA, just like it's in the DNA of Hamas. All right. Hamas, you know, they have no electricity, they have no building materials in Gaza, but they will take whatever electricity and whatever building materials they have to put them into military efforts to destroy us, because that's who they are, that's their identity. That's not going to change. We can't dissuade Hamas to change who it is, what it is. Same thing, we can't dissuade the Ayatollahs to change who they are. So we're going to have to, uh, chances are they're going to create a situation we're going to have to defend ourselves. I would like that decision uh, to be made on our terms, on our timetable, and not at the time and place and means of their choosing, which has been the case again and again and again for the last, uh, since 2006. So you, you talked about um, moving away a little bit from security. You talked about reducing uh, poverty and, and, and decreasing the, uh, the wealth gap. H- how do you think Israel should go about that? Because I, I find myself frustrated that ec- economics is never at the center of, of the debate here. I mean, it's almost like you don't hear any kind of economic platform from anybody. I haven't heard one from, from the leading parties. I haven't. I heard it from my party, which was an economic and, and, uh, and social party. And you saw what happened with my party. Um, there is a sense that, that, that Israel's, uh, you know, the Israel's social and economic problems may be beyond our ability to solve. The people who are poor here are not the people who are part of the, the high-tech miracle. Uh, they're living in the periphery. They're not living, you know, where I'm giving this podcast from in Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm. Um, You'd be surprised. This, listen, your neighborhood's not a wealthy neighborhood. I've yeah. seen it. I, and I can see that this is basically a periphery in downtown, downtown Tel Aviv, but yeah. still. Um, and there are large uh, traditional populations, uh, Jewish and Arab, uh, which almost automatically uh, fall beneath the poverty line, where among the... The Arab women are not working, and the Haredi men aren't working, and, and they're, they're making very large children. And they get a lot of children, so they put some like sort of a priori down the po- believe the poverty line. So um, addressing these issues, these issues will eventually uh, become existential for the state of Israel. As uh, you know, in forty years from now, when one out of every two students in, in an elementary school are Haredi, <laughs> or Haredi, or, or in elementary school age are Haredi, how do you sustain this this society? I meet young Israelis abroad, many, many young Israelis abroad. They say, you know, I have no problem doing reserve duty. I'll fight for the country. It's not missiles and bombs that have driven me away. It's the inability to make a living, inability to buy a house. That is the existential issue. And um, if we don't address it now, we, are, we, we, will, we will be casting our future into great uncertainty. Um, and how do we do it? Well, you do it through various policies, but I think you basically do it through education. Um, getting the Haredim into the army is very important because 93% of them who do military service come out and go into the economy afterward. Um, and um, it's not a matter of handouts. It's not a matter of doles. It's a matter of policy. It's building up the periphery. It's breaking up this, this you know, the, the greater Tel Aviv monopoly over Israeli life. It's creating a, a viable, uh, economically prosperous uh, Israeli-Jewish presence in the Galilee, in the Negev, and the Golan Heights, which has been a particular issue of mine. I've, I've uh, been the forerunner for developing the Golan Heights. It's a matter of vision. Do you not feel that Israel's social pov- policies sometimes drive these kind of... Uh, maybe this is too much of a leading Incentives. question. But, to, but, but do, do you feel that maybe... There's a room for 
Israel to to cut back on social policies in order to drive these communities to prosperity? Or do you think that the answer is in social uh, policy? No, there's a question of the dole, okay, as they yeah. say in England, and people on the dole. I'll give you a personal example. Um, I was an advisor to Yitzhak Rabin. He was assassinated in November 1995, and I found myself overnight out of a job. Now, I'd never been unemployed before. And all of a sudden, I was on an unemployment line with three kids to support. And uh, a very, very difficult period. I turned white during that period. <laughs> and uh, but it was interesting. I, I found um, part-time jobs that paid me much less than what I was getting from unemployment. But if I took the part-time jobs and got the lesser employment, I would lose the greater employment from, from unemployment. So unemployment became a huge disincentive to me to work. Mm-hmm. And I saw how it worked. On a per- I saw how, how the, what the dynamic was on a personal level. That's a classic example. A classic example. And I, I lived through it. I lived through it. I wanted the, the dignity of working, even part-time. But the dignity, the, the value of the dignity did over, didn't override the, the value of the unemployment check. And that, is a, that points to a fundamental flaw in the notion of the... Of this, of that the, the way to address unemployment, which is not just a problem today, but poverty is. The way to address poverty is through handouts. Mm-hmm. I think that if I can give you something to run on in, in uh, the next election, That's on that. ne- negative, you want no, negative income tax, which I think solves it. It says mm-hmm. basically give people a minimum, like define a minimum and give people half of the remaining amount. So that way you're always incentivized to, to go out and work more. Because you're only getting half of what you... I thought you were going to tell him to form the capitalist capitalist party, finally. (laughs) If you want... I mean, that's my hope, but I don't think... uh, It's time for a libertarian party. I'll I'll give you even worse, you know, news. And that is, you know, um, during my watch, on my watch as ambassador, I was uh, privileged to be involved in the process that led to Israel's membership in the OECD. Right, we pulled out. I know, we... No, we're still there, but we are in dead last place in terms of productivity. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, and because we're uh, on Facebook all day long. I think it, well, Israelis work very, very long hours, but they produce less than any other OECD country. Yeah, and it uh, and there are many reasons for that, but one of the reasons is is first of all, we are taxed at such a high level that that it's not worth us for us to to work you know extra hours because we're going to be taxed to nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, and uh, and that uh, we're, we're we can be very inefficient, but this is. Um, the feeling that working harder doesn't doesn't bring about any material improvement in our lives. Yeah. So there we have it. Do you do you leave uh, your term as deputy uh, minister mm. a more optimistic person or a more pessimist person? I would say more realistic. Um, I think that uh, in many ways Israel is in an extraordinary position. Uh, our military is. One of the strongest in the world. The, the IDF, I don't know if you know this, is more than twice as large as the British and French armies combined. Wow. Amazing statistic. Budget-wise or? No, that, numerically. numerically. Okay. I'm not talking about, you know, I don't know, getting into how many tanks and how many planes. Uh, it's the second largest citizens, citizens army in the world after South Korea. And we're probably closing that gap too. Um, we also have less occupied territories than the British and the French combined. <laughs> I'm not sure at this point, <laughs> but probably, yeah, I don't know. Uh, probably not going to go there, <laughs> even, even as an ex-politician. But um, we, our economy is strong. 
you know, even though we have these these income gaps, the economy itself is robust. And Israel is considered a power. We're, we're a tiny little country of nine, year, nine million people. We're considered a world power. And uh, that, to me, is, is amazing. Um, and there we, have, we have multiple reasons to be proud. On the other hand, the realism says we should not be uh, lying on these laurels. We are facing a serious threat in the form of, as it's called, a serious threat in the face of Hamas. We are facing delegitimization, uh, particularly in the West, where we, we, where we need support the most. We are losing uh, liberal American Jewry. We're losing uh, parts of the Democratic Party. Um, I have to look at both sides of this. It's never going to be, you know, black and white. It's going to be lots of gray. And uh, on one hand, while we should celebrate our, our accomplishments, our extraordinary accomplishments, we cannot, cannot afford to be cavalier about the monumental challenges that face this country still. Maybe one last thing. Yeah. What's your prediction for the, uh, for the election? election? How do you see it playing out? You know, I always say I'm an historian. I have enough problems uh, predicting the past. Um, <laughs> but I would assume that uh, barring any uh, you know, unforeseen uh, eventuality, that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu would earn uh, an additional term, uh, that the coalition will look not so much unlike the current coalition, probably a little bit more right-wing, because that's the direction of Israeli politics. And uh, and then we'll we'll see what happens with uh, when the the Trump administration puts its peace plan down the table, because um, I am convinced that there will be significant parts of this coalition that will not be able to say yes or even yes but to this uh, to this plan, and that will cause uh, perhaps uh, some reshuffling. So no chance of a national unity government. It'd be a national government without certain important parties. I mean, oh really? You think? I mean, the Tali no the Tali Bennett has already come out and said no to the peace plan. He hasn't seen the peace plan, but he's already said no to it. So it's uh-huh. like Yalit So I don't know how they sit into in a coalition that um, it, it basically accepts the peace plan. Do you think that? Mm-hmm. But do you think that he'll actually present? Do you think that that's an eventuality that Trump will present a peace plan, or at, maybe at, he's just as of today? On? Yes, I do. I've just so? come from a meeting about it right now. Really? Yeah, I think so it's will. happening. Well, I think it, that, that I think that it will. I think it will happen. The question know, is when, uh, under what circumstances? But I think it will happen. You know, Ariel Sharon once said, uh, "In politics, in Israel, there's the wheel, right? Yeah, and I you've know, got to be on the on the wheel." No, I know. Once you, 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 you know, I heard a guy. He says the main thing is to stay on the wheel because the wheel always turns. Yeah. So I have now gotten off the wheel. <laughs> exactly. And um, I again, I'm not. I, I can't Trying say. To prove I'm old not, Eric wrong. No, no. You know, there have been people who have come back, like Yitzhak Rabin. Not yeah. to say that I'm Yitzhak, but there are people who do come back. And uh, like Bibi, like Bibi, you come back, yeah. get off the wheel. And uh, I'm hoping to be one of those exceptions that uh, got off the wheel and get back on the wheel. And uh, you know, with better spokes, you'll be missed. Right. <laughs> you'll be missed because yeah. you know. You're, you were great, you know. Thank you. You're a Thank great you. legislator, so I'll, uh, representative. I'll, I don't think I was such a great legislator, but uh, <laughs> no, I, legislation is. Uh, it's one of the things I've learned in college. I became. I, I was highly. I gained a great respect for legislators, people who really could get into, you know, again, pension reform, uh, bank reform. It, it's it, it's a field, and uh, it's interesting. Some of the the best legislators I met were in the opposition. Some of them were even Arab members of Knesset. Great legislators. I came. Uh, into Israeli politics to contribute uh, from my life and my knowledge, which has been about the world, um, about foreign policy, about about security policy, about our relations with the United States. Um, 
And I will continue to try to bring that uh, experience and influence to bear in future Knessets. So we, we wish you the best of luck, mainly because we want to have uh, Foreign Minister Michael Oren back on the podcast. Amen. And the Minister <laughs> of, of uh, you know, future ministers. You know, uh, there are many great stories about, uh, about Golda Meir and Abi Ibn. She hated Abi Ibn. <laughs> and they once came to, well, someone once came to her and said, Golda, Golda, Abi Ibn wants to be the prime minister. And she said, very interesting. Of what country? Shalaz <laughs> Medina. <laughs> nice. So before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. Hi, Jewish Journal. We love the Jewish Journal. Um, they're on jewishjournal.com, and you can go there and check them out for great articles great and articles. podcasts. Absolutely. And, uh, guys, we do this on our free time, so if you want to throw a few schmeckles our way, then we have a donate link on the website. Um, so check it out. Thank you so Michael much. Thank you, Oren, you're, Always. On, you're on Facebook and your books are on Amazon. So if and you... now available at famously reduced prices. And now I can start selling my books for, again because I couldn't do it in government. Yeah. Right. Guys, yeah. so check out. Also, we have uh, two previous episodes with uh, Deputy Minister Oren and his, about his books. He has a great book, Ally, about his time as uh, as uh, ambassador to the United States and also Six Days of War and a bunch of other ones. So, yep. Great stuff. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you, for guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye.